I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we're speaking with Sam Cedar of the daily podcast, The Majority Report, which he's hosted since 2010. He's also co-host of the weekly show, Ring of Fire Radio, which features leading progressive voices. Sam's done a lot of storytelling in his career as a comedian, as an actor, as a writer. He's also a frequent guest on MSNBC, known for his well-balanced, progressive views on American politics. And you know, as an independent journalist capturing the kind of young, smart, progressive generation, he's definitely someone who we want to hear from right now. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the At A Distance podcast. It's great to have you with us today. Pleasure to be here. So when you're not making your majority report and ring of fire shows on your time off right now. What are you watching? What am I watching? Mm-hmm. My kids. <laughs> um, I mean, that's to be honest with you. I, I haven't, I have barely watched anything. I mean, it's been really frustrating. I watched the first episode of um, the tiger King thing just because my daughter was like, you watch it, but I haven't had time to finish it. I'm finding this to be more uh, relentless than than anything in the past. Although, and and to a large extent, at night what I'm doing is just uh, calling somebody and or anybody really just randomly and talking to them. Right. That's interesting that you're actually not re- like retreating into this and into content. I was kind of expecting you to have a real opinion on Tiger King. Actually, I'm I'm disappointed you haven't seen the whole thing. I, I mean, I guess I wasn't terribly compelled by it. You know, between frankly, like doing the show and there's just so much to be reading right now in terms of what's going on. I I have less time in this situation than I do um, in a normal one. Mm. I was curious what you thought of the role of comedy right now. You know, a lot of people are talking to are really kind of finding a lot of solace in that. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that just uh, from my perspective, less people seem to be wanting to listen to the news. Mm. I mean, I think initially there was sort of like a change in habit. And so people were consuming podcasts and, and YouTube shows differently. And I imagine that's still going on. But I also am getting the sense that, you know, uh, my listenership is down probably 20 percent right now. Mm. And I think so they're going somewhere. And I imagine comedy is is a big part of it. I've had more people ask me about, you know, uh, tell me they've been watching specials, stand-up specials and whatnot. So what's the option? I, I think really comedy and then uh, movies about infectious diseases, like 12 Monkeys, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's getting a lot more um, uh, watching than it has in, in probably a decade. Well, the role of storytelling, which is something we've been thinking about a lot lately, is so important because... When you think about how we're going to move out of this with some semblance of education or some level of um, change in the emergence, it's really going to come down to how we don't forget what's happening in this moment. So how are you thinking about how we're going to get these stories that are happening right now to stick coming out of this? You know, it's interesting. I did read a book on the the last pandemic we had here, the Spanish flu in, in mm. 1918, which I'm also compelled to say was not from Spain. Mm. And it also was not just in 1918. I think you had people dying well into 1919. There was multiple um, waves of this. And that whole experience was completely erased 
from the popular memory. I mean, hundreds of thousands of Americans died. I think it was like 600,000 off the top of my head uh, died. And mm. maybe because it was associated with World War One, I, I, I don't know. I haven't really contemplated how this is going to be absorbed because I think, to be honest with you, my sense is, is that we're closer to the beginning of this than we are to the end. Mm. I don't even think we're in the middle yet. And I don't think we have even a sense of what's going to happen with the economy. I mean, I think so many things are going to be permanently changed by this mm. in terms of the way that our uh, economy works, the way that people socialize. There's going to be a lot of permanence to what's, what's happening. So I, it's hard to... I'm not sure which part of it we want people to remember, you know, yeah. or we're going to need to remember and aren't simply going to be living on some level. Well, you mentioned 1918 and it's like World War One, and then they get hit with that. And obviously they were connected, but there was this sort of collective moment of chaotic trauma, you know, and, and right now we're, we're in a way experiencing that, or at least half the country feels that way, that this is kind of connected to this larger moment. Yeah, I did a... Um a podcast last night that was uh, sponsored by Politicon, which is this sort of um, Comic-Con for politics, I guess, on some level. And they're doing one um, where they're trying to, they're bringing left and right together. And uh, one of the guys on it was the mayor of, and I can't remember where in Tennessee. And then there was also a conservative woman from, I, I want to say Kentucky, but the number one topic they were talking about that they assumed was on everybody's mind was the abridgment of our First Amendment rights to assemble. And I was like, I got to be honest with you, I've not heard anybody talk about that. And, that, and that's because everybody I talk to is in New York uh, or within close proximity to New York. And there's been over 10,000 people who have died there because of that assembling. And people are not worried frankly, about uh, the mayor saying, you know, stay at home. And I think what you're expressing is, uh, I, didn't, I didn't say ignorance, but that's what I meant. <laughs> um, uh, and, and also a, a regional ignorance, as it were, and maybe a naivete, because it is yet to hit in these other parts of the country that are less dense, but it mm. will. And yeah. they have less capacity than New York does. Now, of course, there's an opportunity now where once New York has leveled off, if there is a problem in a uh, you know in Tennessee, then New York will send equipment and doctors and whatnot. And it's interesting how I mean this country is very fractured ideologically, politically, but also regionally, and just the physicality of stuff mm. is very different. And uh, if you're in a rural part of Tennessee, this must just seem like yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> Well, I think about this experience from New Orleans, which has also been hit badly. And, you know, we're not so far out from Katrina. A city like that is probably experiencing this quite differently. Have you listened to Floodlines yet, the, the podcast that came out from the Atlantic? No, I haven't. It's interesting because it's about Katrina and it just came out in March, like right as the virus hit. Oh. And the parallels are kind of uncanny between the two beautifully produced show. I'm curious from your perspective in terms of audio storytelling and kind of podcasting, you mentioned earlier, fewer people are wanting to listen to the news, but what sort of impacts is this virus having on the medium? 
You know, it's hard to say. I mean, there are some, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm seeing that it's, that, that it's down, the raw numbers are down for the most part. And I suspect that's again, because people are out of their habits. And mm. I think to a certain extent, I don't know what percentage of people are going to go back to work after this. I mean, presuming they do have work. Yeah. I'm quite convinced that within another couple of weeks, we're going to have 40 million people unemployed. Hmm. And we've never experienced anything like this. We've never, ever lost this many jobs, period. And certainly not in this quick of a, you know, a five-week period or six-week period. But in terms of the, and, and we're talking about, you know, largely like professionals or quasi-professionals, people who, who are going to go back to work that way. I mean, I think that's who a lot of like podcast listeners have been up to this point. I think a lot of those people may not pick it up again because maybe they're not commuting. That'll be 10 to 15% of those people. But there's also probably another set of people who are listening to these things for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so after this, I think there'll be an expanded audience for this type of stuff. I mean, I think as a culture, we're just going to be consuming even more media after this. I mean, I think there mm -hmm. may be some people who are like, I'm going out. <laughs> but I think there's just going to be more consumption of media. We're going to get into that habit and it may stick. I, I imagine there'll be some innovation that comes out of this. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, certainly like Zoom in terms of podcasting and what I do, there's a lot more video integrated into it because frankly, now my guests all have better setups than they did four or five weeks ago. Yeah. So like the, the quality that I can get from people is, is better. So I think, you know, that's something I think the opposite is going to happen on some level with cable television, for instance. Now that they've been able to sort of introduce this vernacular to their audience, particularly in the, on this level, I think there's going to be more diversity, at least regional diversity in the news. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying like, we can't get this person in Idaho to a studio, uh, you know, after 6 p.m., we'll just do it via Skype. I mean, I've done MSNBC once from where I'm sitting now, which is in, you know, basically in the attic of my house. I did that, I guess, about three or four weeks ago. They wanted me to do it again last night. I, I mean, I just couldn't uh, in terms of timing. But I don't see any reason why they wouldn't continue to do that for the most part for people that they can't get. Mm. You, you mentioned this vernacular that's happening right now, which which I'm also finding really interesting. It's It started with early on, maybe three or four weeks ago, it's like Don Lemon's makeup wasn't done properly. <laughs> right. You know, we started seeing this kind of degradation of the veneer yeah. and and <laughs> bill maher in his backyard <laughs> you got a beard you know I'm, it's yeah, looking good head, by the way like i i took some time today to to because i woke up in the morning i'm like oh yeah, i'm getting a lot of uh pushback people are talking like, about your hair <laughs> my hair and uh, your daughter wants to cut it exactly and uh my my daughter was like you gotta like your beard you gotta shave up here dad you look like I don't know. You look like 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 a like a mountain man or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's interesting that that we're in all these people's homes. The makeup's not there. The veneer's gone. Do you think that Cuomo in his basement? There's this kind of thing happening, which is very very personal. Do you think that that is going to eventually evolve into sort of more truth or just another kind of language? I think it's just going to be another kind of language. I mean, yeah. you know. Whether it's more truth, I don't know. You, you, it is an extension of the dynamic that we have with social media, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, where people are broadcasting more personal things about themselves. But it also is more training on how to brand ourselves. 
as mm. as commodities in some type of like social media marketplace. And mm. I, I think it's more of an extension of that. Yeah. I think if someone was to make the argument, but there is a little bit more truth, you get a little more sense of what people are like. You know, my kids could come running in here right now or be screaming. In fact, it's sort of almost odd that they're not screaming right now. Um, <laughs> but in the end of the day, I'm not sure. I think it's just a change in the vernacular. And, and I think that's been, you know, mm. it's been heading in that direction anyways, right? The pretense and the artifice, right. at least with younger people, they're much less interested in that. And I think that's why a lot of them mm. get their news from like people like me, frankly, because there is just a broad distrust of institutions and the mm. uh, imprimaturs that used to give us as consumers or of news, like some sense of like, oh, well, they're an expert because it mm -hmm. says, you know, underneath there in their Chiron expert. So yeah. they're, they're yeah. an expert. And I think the trend has been going in that direction anyways. And, and I think part of it is yeah. just because the technology is there, right? I mean, mm. you could never do that broadcast from, I keep thinking about Al Franken. You remember that he, on Saturday Night Live, he had a remote setup that he would do for weekend mm -hmm. update. I mean, this is going back <laughs> yeah. many, many years. There was a sketch where he had like, you know, an antenna on his head and he got, I think he got electrocuted or something like that, but we're living that now, right? We have that on our yeah. phones. So we're using it and it's being integrated into sort of all these things. Yeah. I mean, I think about how fast Andrew and I were able to mobilize and create this show within just a couple weeks. Yeah, it's nuts. Get our gear, set it up. On the opposite side of that spectrum, there's sort of this underlying theme of conspiracy theories that just keep coming up in the media. And this has long been happening, but I feel like it's even more politicized and, and fraught in this time of COVID. How are you viewing this sort of conspiratorial arguments happening, whether it's right smear campaigns on journalists or, I mean, you've experienced this. Uh, maybe I'm too close to it to see that there's been an increase, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I don't know if there's been an increase, but I, there's certainly been, there's certainly a level of conspiracy theory coming out of this moment. Yeah, but I mean, I, my sense is that you're just more aware of it now rather than <laughs> yeah, there being yeah. more of it. I mean, do you remember yeah. Jade Helm? No. There was a... I don't know if it's an annual thing, but the military was doing, they do like war game exercises and mm. they do them over the course of like multiple states. They don't actually mobilize military. They, it's all just written out. And somehow one of these documents got leaked. This is during the Obama administration. And there was a huge, huge belief that the Obama administration was looking to invade Texas. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> like, this is, I mean, it was massive. Yeah, it I remember that. Yeah, massive, the belief. So I think there may be an increase of what's going on. And part of that is yeah. because like, hey, look, we're all at home. And you know what we're going through is dystopic. And also we can see this depicted in movies, right? And so- yeah. I mean, in, in the UK, they're burning cell towers. Arsonists have been burning oh, really? 5G towers because there were rumors that the virus is being started by 5G. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, I think it's like anything else. It's like when people are in any way- oppressed or put out, they're constantly looking for an explanation. And the subtle ones or the just sort of the, the plain ones like, mm. hey, there's a virus, we caught it. <laughs> or, you know, global warming could be exposing us to things that we haven't been exposed to before. I think 
you know, it's a, it's a normal human reaction. I mean, I think you could argue that religion was largely uh, a response to sort of dealing with, with phenomena. And it's just, we're in an age where more people have access and can amplify these things. And so they grow. I'm very online. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no conspiracy that I'm like, I can't believe these people believe. I don't say that anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> That, that, that I never have that reaction. It's not possible for me to have that reaction anymore. Journalism right now is is obviously serving a very important role. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on China expelling these journalists from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, it's a problem. For me, I got to be honest with you, the big story is just like how journalism is getting decimated. I think there's been like, I don't know, Mm -hmm. 30,000 layoffs from journalist outfits. You know, that to me is the, is the bigger factor, right? Like, cause we know, we know that China did that. And that gives us a sense of like, there's a problem there. And what is it that they don't want to get out? Mm. When you lose a huge percentage of your journalistic capacity it's just it just happens very quietly mm. and nobody knows it and it's just we don't know what we don't know <laughs> when that happens we can look at china and say like there's stuff coming that's happening there that we're not aware of maybe mm-hmm. there were more deaths i mean i would imagine there were maybe there were more infections maybe it's resurging we just don't know but we know that there's a problem there when did it start is this sort of the the huffpo kind of the beginning of aggregated news, the devaluing of the individual journalist? Well, when journalism went online, just from an economic standpoint, it mm. became, and, and then there was a huge problem with Facebook sucking, you know, all that fake um, views that they were getting. Mm-hmm. People started chasing that and they basically went out on a limb and then the limb got cut off. And so you, you wiped out a lot of journalists. But I'm saying in the past five weeks, right. there has been something like 30,000 journalistic uh, layoffs. Because the advertising is dried up. No one wants their ad next to COVID content. I don't even know if it's that necessarily as much as like, they're not doing any business. Yeah, (laughs) that too. I see this on YouTube. You know, a big portion of my revenue comes from YouTube and Mm. the ad rates have almost halved. The CPMs that we're getting on YouTube and internationally, it's even worse. I don't know what the nature of the ads that I was selling were coming from Germany or something, but I can see that I'm getting like two or three dollars less. They used to be five or six dollars CPM, and now they're like barely three. Mm. And that same thing's happening with US ads, and there's less ads. So it's sort of both, which one would expect. And when I see, you know, layoffs at the LA Times or whatnot, I presume they're going through the same dynamic. Mm. And local news. These are things that probably will not come back. Some of them will, Hmm. but a decent percentage won't. And we won't know it. Yeah. There's going to be an absence of information and news about things like local news in terms of like corruption, what's going on with the government. And we just won't, we won't know what we don't know at that point. Hmm. A lot of unaccountability. A tremendous amount of, of just complete unaccountability which is problematic for obvious reasons. Just take, for instance, our response to this pandemic. I remember the reporting on the admiral who sat on the National Security Council and his team being wiped out by Trump in 2018 and Bolton. This was a Republican thing. This wasn't just a Trump thing. This was like, you know, Republican perspective on government is that 
if there isn't a pandemic every day, we don't need a pandemic readiness. <laughs> That's sort of the attitude. But I didn't realize that his counterpart at the Department of Homeland Security was also taken out. Mm. I didn't realize that the CDC had embedded a uh, pandemic specialist in China was fired eight months ago. It was reported, but next time, maybe it's not because there's just not enough people around, you know, reporters on these beats. We have a problem in this country, in particular in this country, that we have no slack in the system. Yeah. And so when it comes to, let's say, oh, okay, we have a huge uh, economic crash and we have 40 million people unemployed. How do we get them money? We have no system to get them money. Mm -hmm. We have no infrastructure. That's our problem here is that we have no really significant economic stabilizers that are automatic and kick in mm. when we when we have something, an event like this. How is that going to play out into the election? Nine months from now, we're going to be nine months into the pandemic without a vaccine, probably won't have a centralized testing system that actually works. The stimulus money will have been spent. What's going to happen? Honestly, uh, it's really hard to predict. I mean, what Trump and the Republicans are trying to do now is a mixture of shifting blame ranging from it was the Chinese and the World Health Organization that put us into this medical situation. And it's the blue state governors that are going to put us into the economic situation. So mm -hmm. Trump is going to try and push over the next month or two, get, get back out there. And it's probably going to be somewhat coordinated or it's going to be followed by a series of Republican governors. So you'll see Florida trying to do stuff. You'll see like the WWE, like the World Wrestling Association is essential business. You'll see Texas maybe uh, doing this stuff. Maybe you'll see some Midwest states, one or two Southern states who are going to try and, and open things up a little bit. And then they're going to try and box in these two sort of packs that have been made on the coast, right? Between the governors and in uh, Washington and Oregon and California, and then here in like New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Rhode Island, and, and Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's going to work, frankly, but it doesn't have to work across the country, right? It just has to mm -hmm. work. That's why what's going on in Michigan right now is really the biggest sort of like tell. They are going after Whitmer because Michigan is a swing state. And so they are trying to make it seem like the economic fallout from this is her fault, as opposed to she's taking proper care because Michigan has gotten hit hard, yeah. Detroit in particular. And there's always been this dynamic in Michigan between Detroit and the rest of, uh, of the state. And it, you know, a lot of it is race-based, frankly. And so that's where you look. The election is going to come down to like three or four states again, right? I mean, there's no mm. way Donald Trump is going to get more votes in the national election. His path to victory is going to be, you know, the electoral college. So they're going to do the same thing. They're going to try and focus on a couple of states. Michigan is one of them. Meanwhile, in Wisconsin, it's hard to predict anything from the numbers that happened there from that primary, but people were pissed. And there was a major upset in terms of the Supreme Court in Wisconsin the other day. And they were pissed that the Republicans, basically the Republican legislature, the Republican state Supreme Court and the Republican dominated national Supreme Court did everything they could to rig that election for the Republicans. And they put people out there, they endangered their lives. I think we're still probably another couple of days away from starting to realize how many people may have been infected by that. But I don't know if you saw that picture of the 
the Republican lawmaker, the state lawmaker, the head of one of the houses of the chamber, maybe the Senate, DeVos, I think, or DeRoss or something like that. There was a picture of him, uh, actually a video of him telling everybody like, this is perfectly safe to come and vote. We've got the whole system set up. And he is literally wearing rubber gloves, a surgical gown, a face mask, and a surgical net. As he's saying, it's perfectly safe for all of you to come out. And the Supreme Court voted remotely. Yeah. I can't imagine that that anger is not going to exist in Wisconsin. Making them come out at that point, it could very well be the difference in, in a place like Wisconsin. So it's impossible to predict how it's going to go in that way. I don't think Biden's the, the strongest of, of candidates necessarily, but I will say that what's happening now is extremely helpful to him, both in terms of like, this is the context in which you want to run, but also if you're someone who doesn't have much energy, you don't want to, it's nice to have an excuse that you you don't have to go out on the campaign trail. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this wartime president idea is going to play out by November, if that's going to stick, if that's going to fall apart. Yeah, I think it's already getting very, very creaky. And I think his numbers have dropped already since that sort of initial high. And I think as the disease travels across the country, that's going to change. It's really easy to be to be sitting in, let's say, Tennessee, and there's four cases within 100 miles of you. And you're like, oh, President's done a good job. Uh, that changes when you start to see, you know, local newspapers say hospital overrun. Yeah, because we only have ten ICU beds and we have thirty patients. What we've been interested in in the last couple of weeks since we've been doing the show is is this kind of whole Earth perspective that we're hoping comes out of this. And you know, I might seem naive or optimistic, but you know. <laughs> In reality, this is very explicit how we are connected throughout the world as a species and how we are dealing with kind of a whole earth problem. So I'm interested in what you've been thinking in terms of that sort of out of the day-to-day -day news cycle. The real question for me is that can we get even a consensus that we have a whole society from an American perspective? Like Americans have to sort of accept that our fates are sort of tied together. When you do have... 30 or 40% of the population who's looking at this thing and saying of like, this is contrary to what the founders wanted. The idea of us being able to sort of accept that like your mask protects me, my mask protects you, which was like that saying that came out, I think out of Czechoslovakia, which is really the dynamic, right? That's why everybody wears masks. It's not because it's going to keep you from getting the virus. It's going to keep you from giving it to other people mm. because we don't know who that person is. I don't think that we can have that broad understanding of the implications of the planet. I mean, hopefully it could it could help in terms of climate change, but I think until we at least get a a 60% consensus in this country that we're connected and I think we will see that in terms of different policies. Mm. I just I don't think that that is a settled understanding in this country. They're talking about getting rid of the post office. That is when we talk about connective tissue in this country, mm. the post office is it. We all got to buy stamps this week. Yeah. But the fact is that they passed a law back in 07. I mean, you probably know this, but where the, the post office had to pre-fund its pension obligations for 75 years. There's been a long-term attempt to destroy the post office in this way. But this is the thing that binds everybody together. It has more connectivity than, than the web, frankly. Mm -hmm. And the idea that there would be this sort of cavalier sense of like, oh, they're not going to bail out the post office. Oh, well, that to me 
we're we're it is going to be really hard for people to get the idea that like our fates are sort of whether you're in America or in India or in Africa or our fates are sort of bound together is a really hard concept if you can't even get that like our fates are bound together you know across a couple of state lines not that it's totally your thing but what i do want to end on is where are you seeing hope right now what is giving you a sense of hope what is giving me a sense of hope I can communicate it in the context of, of politics, and this is sort of narrow, but it, it, it's a metaphor. When Sanders endorsed Biden on their co-Zoom show that they did together, Biden said, because of this, I realize we can't go back to what we had before, that we've got to forge something new. And his whole campaign was, I'm going to return you back to normalcy. I'm going to return you back to where we were before Donald Trump, which I thought was an illusion and foolish and insufficient and electorally not necessarily, well, I don't know, electorally, obviously it was, it was helpful in the Democratic primary, but, but now he has license to say, because I think it's true, we're going to have to do something different on the other side of this because it has exposed all these sort of cracks in our system, the flaws in our system. And I think the impetus to build something in our society that has durability and has a, an ability to reach as many people as possible, I think we have more of an opportunity to do that at the end of this than we've had probably in my lifetime, certainly in my lifetime as an adult. Mm. And I'm very much encouraged by that. On the most basic level, you would think that this would enhance people's awareness of maybe something like climate change. Wow, things really can impact us as a world. I'm less hopeful about that, but more hopeful that at the very least, an interim step will happen, which is we understand that we are connected in our society, inexorably connected. And we need to make sure that we're only as strong as the weakest link. And I think that concept, we need more of that here. And I think we're going to probably get some. Well, that's nice to hear. Thank you so much for coming on today, Sam. It was such a pleasure to hear your perspective. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.